Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Chris Jones should be a familiar name not only to Ripperologists, but listeners to our podcast, as we've been privileged enough to release a few of his talks from his past appearances at the Whitechapel Society, as well as his presentation at the 2018 U.S. Ripper Conference in Baltimore. In 2007, he organized the trial of James Maybrick at Liverpool Cricket and Sporting Club and went on to write the highly praised book, The Maybrick A to Z. He's also contributed numerous articles on the Maybricks in various journals and has also contributed to two books produced by the Whitechapel Society, 2011's Jack the Ripper, The Suspects and 2014's The Little Book of Jack the Ripper. This is the first of two talks Chris gave over the weekend of the 10th and 11th of September, 2022, at the launch event in Liverpool for the book The Maybrook Murder in the Diary of Jack the Ripper, which he co-authored with Daniel Dolgan in a book that is available now from Mango Books. So this is talk one, The Maybrook Murder. Thank you. Okay, what I did was very amiss before before of me to say a big thank you to all of you for making the the real effort to turn up today. I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. I also need to thank a few people. I thanked Adam, but one of the other persons I need to thank is Lisa at the back there, who's provided this monstrous screen. (laughs) I tried to put it up on Friday. It took me an hour. (laughs) Only took them about half an hour today, didn't it? So thank you very much to Lisa for all her help. Okay, a bit of background on who these people are, because as I say, I know some of you know all of this, but some of you don't know very much. This is the guy, this is James. James was born in Liverpool. He was born in Church Alley. Church Alley, if you don't know it, is the road that goes down to the Blue Coat School. So if you're off Church Street, there's a, there's a narrow pedestrianised street now, which goes down to the Blue Coat, and that's where he, he was born, and that's where he lived all his early life. So he was a Liverpudlian. He became a cotton merchant. Some of the books will tell you he was a cotton broker. He wasn't a cotton broker, he was a cotton merchant. The difference is a cotton broker sells somebody else's cotton, a cotton merchant sells his own cotton. He established a company in Tybarn Street in, no, in the Nosley Buildings, which is now knocked down, and he, with his brother, They would go over to Norfolk, Virginia, they would buy cotton, and they would sell them in Liverpool to the Lancashire Mills. And that's what Liverpool, 50% of all Liverpool's trade at that time was cotton. King cotton, they called it. He he lived for a while in London. In fact, he lived for a while quite close to the Whitechapel area of London, which some people obviously make a bit of because that's where the Ripper murders took place. A little bit about his personality. He was a man who was physically quite strong and generally was in good health. However, he suffered from chronic dyspepsia, which was chronic indigestion. And he was always seeking, he went to doctor after doctor, treatment after treatment to try and resolve that problem. He was a a terrible hypochondriac. He had in his office and in his house, a vast array of medicines of all different types. 
some of them highly toxic and dangerous. Those drugs included both arsenic and strychnine. Um, he started to take arsenic in the 1870s. When he was in America, he developed malaria. They tried using quinine to treat it, but it didn't work, so they put him onto arsenic. And it became a lifelong habitual drug that he used, and he was continually trying to source it. One drug that he did source much more easily and regularly was strychnine. A huge amount of the books talk about arsenic. There's a book called Etched in Arsenic about the case. To me, the actual key drug isn't arsenic at all, it's strychnine. He said, one of his brothers, Edwin, actually said, James is killing himself with strychnine. Now, both of those are obviously deadly poisons. So you say, well, why would he, why would he take strychnine? Well, strychnine was seen as a stimulant. And in fact, it has been used in small doses by athletes to try and enhance their performance. But obviously, both of them are highly toxic, highly dangerous drugs. And that he was regularly pumping into his system. Some of them he was using, as he called a pick-me-up, would be like an aphrodisiac. And I sometimes say that if you want to think of arsenic in that context, in the modern sense, it's a cross between cocaine and Viagra. Uh, and by the way, Jackie, I've got some a little bit later. If you... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I won't be joking. I won't be joking. I'm, I'm keeping it myself. Uh, so, he's a life using these for many, many years. So by 1888, they were really beginning to kick into his system. And he was a man who was starting to physically deteriorate. Now, that was even more of a problem for him because his wife was 20, 20 years younger and she was getting stronger as he was. So how did he meet that challenge? By taking even more of the drugs. So at the time of his death, he had this really dangerous drug habit. On the positive, he, he was a, a lot of people liked him. One of the problems we have with James Maybrick is we, people tend to see him through the prism of the diary, so everybody assumes he was a horrible, evil man. That's not the case. In his day, he could be friendly, he could be generous, he could be kind. Now, we know for a fact he did hit and give Florence a black eye right near the end of his life, and he may have done it on other occasions, so he was clearly flawed, but he was very popular. On the other hand, he could be quite aggressive. As I say, he was, he was a physically strong man. He was a successful businessman. He was a member of many organizations and clubs. He was a very prominent Freemason. He was a member of the Palatine Club, which was a sort of a rich businessman's club, which was in Bowl Street. And he was a member of Liverpool Cricket Club. Joined in uh, 1884, and his wife joined a little bit later. Because she was female, she couldn't join as an actual member. She could only become an associate member. And as I said to some of the people on the tour yesterday, she wasn't even allowed in the building. There was, big, there was a sign outside that said, no women or dogs allowed, honestly. Uh, so they built in the corner of the field, which is still there, a pavilion for the ladies. It's now a nursery. Now, once again, this, this, people tend to see psychopaths as loners. Not all of them. 
but there's this, he has certain attributes which don't fit into those uh, clear categories. He liked to drink, he liked to smoke, he liked to gamble. He's quite a nice guy then, really. Uh, exceedingly fond of wine. He liked horses in any capacity. He liked to ride. He liked to go horse racing. His wife liked horse racing. It was one of the big things they had in common. He liked to bet. He also had a long-standing relationship with a woman called Sarah Ann Robertson, who he'd met in London in 1858-59. He could have had, well, and I think he did have, five children with her, although we argue in the book they all died either at birth or very soon afterwards. He certainly had all five children before he met Florence. What about Florence then? Florence was born in Mobile, Alabama. She was from a very wealthy family. One of her distant relatives was the president, John Quincy Adams. Her uh, father was a banker, but her father died just months after Florence was born. Now, there's some debate about her birth, whether it was 1861 or 1862. I'll, I'll just park that for one moment because we get bogged down in that. Her mother was married four times and was a baroness. At the end of her life, she was married to a Prussian officer. She was a real lively character. Um, what about Florence? We know a little bit about her height and her weight because when she was put in prison, that, that those things were physically rec actually recorded. So she was five foot three and weighed eight stone. She was an attractive woman. She was not considered very clever. Even her mother said she was very naive and a bit foolish. However, she spoke two or three languages. She, she, she was fluent in French. She spoke some German. I'm not, we couldn't ever definitively find out how much German she spoke, but she lived for a while in Germany. Her father was a, a Prussian, a, well, stepfather, sorry. So we're pretty sure that she did speak it. Uh, she wrote a book, and she be, she, later on in life, when she came out of prison, she conducted successful, she was a, a successful public speaker. So she, she couldn't have been all that daft. She must have been a bit more about her than some of the books suggest. Contradiction in her nature. On the one hand, she liked to be pampered, and she liked the lifestyle of living at home. You know, many women in, in Victorian England were frustrated by that. They wanted to pursue a career, not Florence. Florence was quite happy sitting at home and being pampered. But she was also a woman at the same time who could show great resilience. She spent 15 years in prison, in a harsh Victorian prison, and she came out the other side. At the end of her life, she endured a lot of poverty and, and survived. So I think many people underestimate her strength of character. But as I said before, as James was physically going downhill, Florence was physically going uphill. She was getting, and the age gap between them was getting more noticeable. She met James crossing on, on a, on a cross-Atlantic voyage in 1888, and they married St. James's Church. She was 18, he was 42. Now, we could have a big debate on whether it was just a marriage of love or was he after her money and so on, but that would take a bit too long. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to suggest that James was interested in her because she was wealthy, but I also think he was physically attracted to her as well. I think there was an element of pragmatism, an element of greed, but also an element of love. The first years of their marriage were happy years. 
They lived half the year in Norfolk, Virginia. This is the house that they lived in, in Freemason Street. Um, James was doing really well within his business. In 1884, they moved back and they live in Liverpool full time. In the first few years, they used to spend six months in America, six months in Britain, buying cotton, coming back to Britain, selling the cotton. 1887, big sea change happens. Florence finds out that James is paying money to another woman. She finds out by accident. She discovers some papers. Now, we don't know 100% if it was Sarah Ann Robinson, but that seems the most likely candidate. James, when he deserted, he never married her, but he, he lived with her for quite a while, so he, he, he promised to leave her some money every, every month or so. Florence found out about it and wasn't very happy. She also, James, as I say, was physically beginning to deteriorate. Between June and September 1888, he visited his own doctor, it was in Rodney Street, 20 times. 20 times. Now, once again, that is, you can see there's a possible link maybe with the second story, because June, September 1888 links into, well, when the, the, the Ripper killings start. Sometime early in 1888, they moved to Battle Crease House. Um, you can still go to this house, go outside, outside, it's opposite Liverpool Cricket Club on Riversdale Road. Um, they lived in this half of the house, so if you're on the road, Riversdale Road, you're on the left-hand side. This is their bedroom there, that's the room in which James died, that's the inner bedroom which we'll talk about. In those days, this was the front of the house. And all the way down there, there was almost 100 yards of um, gardens and beautiful, there was an orchard, there was the stables, all that's been sold. The, the current owner, Paul Dodd, his father sold it, he called it his pension pot, sold off the land and there's all sorts of houses there now. So when you go there, you look at it, you don't get this, the sense of grandeur and splendour that it once was. It was a pretty nice place. And not only that, just before the Maybricks moved in, the house had been done up by a guy called Philip Herbal. It's a street named after in Liverpool. He was a hotelier uh, and caterer, and he wanted to do it into a club, which failed. Although it failed, he'd renovated the whole property. Maybricks moved in, and everything looked great. However, Florence, as we said, not over happy with James, starts to look around, this is another guy who was a member of the cricket club, another guy who was a cotton merchant. He comes from a very, very wealthy family. Alfred Brealey. And two nights in March 1889, Florence stays with him in a hotel in London. That, that's, that's a fact, okay? Now, James has got this long-standing mistress and probably had some other dalliances as well. Florence, just spent two nights. But that cast her in the trial as the fallen woman. And you have to put this in the context of the norms and mores of, the, of Victorian England. And people were scandalised. Queen Victoria believed that any woman who could commit adultery could commit murder. Florence only got out of prison after Queen Victoria died. Queen Victoria was totally opposed to her coming out. That was a big factor in the case against her. James becomes ill 
on the 27th of April, 1889. According to the, the prosecution at his trial, he gets ill twice. His first illness is the 27th of April. He recovers, but on the 3rd of May, he gets a second illness from which he dies. The case against Florence was largely circumstantial. On, just before he becomes ill on the 27th, Florence buys two sets of flypapers. Now, flypapers fly were used to kill flies. And they had within them arsenic. Many routine daily products that you could buy in any shop contained arsenic. Florence bought them because she soaked them in water, it got the arsenic out, it made a very, very weak arsenic solution, and she used it as a cosmetic. Something that she'd done before. What made this so alarming and caused huge headlines was that in 1884, two Liverpool women, known as the Black Widows, Mrs Flanagan and Mrs Higgins, kill their husbands for insurance money using arsenic extracted from flypapers. So when she bought the flypapers, or when they found out that she bought the flypapers, it set all alarm bells off ringing. But to me, it's the biggest red herring of the whole lot. The solution that she produced was so weak that if any one of us in this room now consumed the whole lot, we'd be fine. It takes about two grains of arsenic to kill a person, someone like James, who's a regular user of three grains. This would have something like a tenth of a grain. You'd be fine, honestly. We argue in the book that it, what makes him ill isn't the flypapers, it's nothing to do with arsenic. He gets, in the post, delivered to him what's called a London medicine. The London medicine was a powerful strychnine sulphate, which is perfectly, at that time, legal to buy. Highly dangerous, highly toxic. We know James got that because he said he got it. He told people. We also know from the symptoms. One of the symptoms of taking strychnine, strychnine controls your muscle movements. You start to twitch. He's twitching. He's having problems riding on his horse. He knocks over a bottle. He takes strychnine. He says he takes a double dose of it. And he's seriously ill. The next day... Guess what he does? He takes another double dose of it. And he's seriously ill again. On the 4th of May, he takes another big dose of it. So his illness, if you like, dovetail in times, not with any arsenic use, but with his, his own use of strychnine. Um, Florence, what does Florence do? This, on the 4th of May, after he's taken... Well, on the, on the 27th of April, she calls for the doctor straight away, and she, makes, she gets a solution to make him sick, to vomit it up. She's trying to help him. On the 4th of May, she actually throws it away. She was a woman with murder on her mind. She'd be encouraging him to finish it off. Finish off, oh, have another little go. Finish off the bottle. You know, she doesn't. She does the exact opposite. So we got this circumstantial evidence of the flypapers. And then you got the circumstantial evidence and people began to say, the food started tasting funny. Now, one of the things that they did with, with, with the arsenic is to try and, after the Flanagan and Higgins case, they added a bitter substance to it so that people couldn't use it or shouldn't be able to use it to poison people. So the only way you could do it was mask the bitter taste. 
So you would have to add it to something like sherry or strong flavored food. So all of a sudden, a rumor went round that the food was tasting funny. Now we deal with that in the book and we say that that was all blown out of proportion. One of the key things was, this is the bottle there. James goes to his office and he takes some gruel made by the cook at his house, Battle Crease. Gets to the office, pours it into a jug, heats it up and eats it. And goes, oh, it doesn't taste very nice. Bad sherry, bad wine in it. When it was tested, traces of arsenic were found. Although this had been prepared by the cook, it had been packaged by Florence. So there was another way that the police were linking these things together. Now, there's all sorts of faults with that. First of all, James could have put arsenic in himself because that's what he had a tendency to do. He was continually, he was well known for adding in arsenic to his food. But not only that, the pan that he used, the lining in it contained traces of arsenic. So it could have come from all sorts of ways. Um, but it, it, at the time, it did appear damning against her. Now, the most important, pivotal thing of all, and nearly took it to the gallows, is this incident here. This is the, the plan of the house. Some of those of you who were there yesterday will instantly recognize that. James is ill in bed. Can't barely move. He's desperate for his fix of strychnine or arsenic. This, Florence has been banned from giving him anything. By James's, by James's brother Michael, who thinks that Florence might be up to no good. There's a professional nurse sitting in the room, Nurse Gore. And James is going to Florence, please, 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 give me, give me, I need some of this, I need some of this. And he's got a packet on the side of his bed. A bottle of Valentine's meat juice, this, this is a highly concentrated nutrient, which was given to people who were ill to try and, because, you know, it was difficult for them to, to take very much to provide them a big hit to help them try and make them improve. This is one of the bottles, not the bottle, uh, but this is one of the bottles. That is the bottle picture of. The nurse had opened it, given James some. Florence was sitting in, in the room there. She picks up the bottle. She supposedly, according to the nurse, does it in a sort of suspicious way. She takes it into the dressing room, you know, the top right-hand side, closes the door, and then, a few minutes later, brings the bottle back and puts it on the round table, which is by the window, and then a little bit later moves it to the washstand. When this was tested, a half a grain of arsenic was found in it. In the mind of the jurors, this was the most important piece of evidence. If the other stuff was circumstantial, this was clearly tangible. And Florence actually admitted doing it. She, didn't, she said she didn't know what it was. Now, we've got issues with, with this because one of the problems with it, if she added it into powder, it wouldn't have dissolved. So it is a bit mysterious, all this, but it certainly is a damning piece of evidence. So although I personally think that Florence was absolutely innocent, we have to understand why some people thought she was guilty, and this is the most important factor, that she had put something which tests seem to suggest was arsenic. Three days later, James dies.
what else could it have been that made him ill? First of all, he took a huge amount of arsenic. In January, one of the speakers later on is going to pass some doubt on this, but I, I think it's, it is the case. He received a large amount of arsenic, 150 grains of arsenic in three packets. That's enough to kill 50 people. He had a vast amount of strychnine from two different sources, a strychnine sulfate and from Nux vomica. Nux vomica comes from an Indian plant which is used to make rat poison. That's, he's sitting on that. He's taken an unknown powder witnessed by a, a guy called Captain Irwin in his office. And these are the things that were prescribed to him by these doctors during a 13-day period. Um, you can see some of these things will like shock you even just looking at them. They included three highly toxic, dangerous metallic poisons. Included arsenic, which could be found in Fowler's solution, antimony in plumber's pill, and bismuth. Very much the case, in our opinion, that the doctors unwittingly they, they did, I'm not saying they, 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 they thought they were doing the right thing, but the concoction of powerful drugs they gave him is just crazy. So a man who was already weak, who was struggling, they're the knockout blow. He dies on the 11th of May. The police come on the scene. Instantly, they decide that Florence is the prime suspect. Why? They believe she had a motive. She wanted to get away from James. She wanted to be with Alfred Brealey. She had the means. She had the fly papers. But they also found in the house a huge amount of arsenic. One of those big bundles of arsenic, arsenic poison for cats, was found in her trunk. Now, the trunk was actually in the linen cupboard where all the servants went. So that didn't make much sense for her to put it in there. Another big was found in hat boxes, which belonged to James. Well, who was going to poison their husband using poison stored in his own hat boxes? It doesn't make sense, but it was there. There was a large amount of arsenic, that can't be denied. And she had the opportunity. She had packed his food, she gave him medicine. So that was in the eyes of the police. The opening day of the inquest took place in the Egbert Hotel. That is now where the Kingsman's pub is. That was, that's been knocked down, uh, and they knocked down a wonderful old building and put, excuse the word, shitey place instead. Uh, so, but it, the, the, Egbert, the Egbert Hotel was a, was, was a rather, rather nice posh place. Um, the first day of the inquest was there. This is the guy who was the coroner, Brighouse. He was a lawyer for Ormskirk. Why Ormskirk? Why are we in Garston? Because at this time... <coughs> Riversdale Road was not in Liverpool. Garston doesn't become part of Liverpool till 1902. All this takes place not in Liverpool, but in southwest Lancashire. Hence, the coroner was from Lancashire, the inquest takes place in Garston in Lancashire, and it was investigated by the Lancashire police, not the Liverpool police. On the first day of the inquest, only witness was Michael Maybrick. He identifies as James. And then the, the coroner suggests, well, why don't we just nip across the road and have a walk around Battle Crease? So off they go. And James is still in bed. Dead. 
And as they're there, the original foreman of the jury, a guy called Dalglish, looks at James and says, I know him. I saw him on a train recently. He took a powder out of his pocket and swallowed it. And when I asked him what it was, he said strychnine. The coroner, the coroner said, well, hang on a minute. Well, that might be important. So you can no longer be the foreman. And suddenly, this guy who could have been a real powerful support for Florence is airbrushed out. Never, ever called again. Never appears at the inquest. He never appears at the trial. Yet, literally, days before James become ill, he had actually seen James swallow a large quantity of strychnine. Florence is charged three days, or she's cautioned, in bed. She's still in bed. James's funeral takes place in St Mary's in Grassendale. And then one week before she's been formally interviewed by the police, she's arrest, charged with murder and taken to Walton Jail, awaiting trial. The police officers, I haven't got a lot of time to look at these here. These, these, I'm not saying that these guys were bad or they were corrupt or anything like that. But they were men of limited experience. The first one, Baxendale, had made his name catching sheep stealers. His background was in the rural crime. The top man was also a farming son. What's also disappointing for these two, not that they, they deliberately thought they were doing anything wrong, but they were too deferential. James's brother, Michael, was a very famous guy. Famous singer, famous composer, leading Freemason, a friend of the Prince of Wales, these guys, ooh, better keep him happy. The, re the, the, the inquest reconvenes in this room. If you look at the door there, you can see, or you, actually you can't see because the screen's in the way, but if you have a look later on, you'll see that door there. It's, it's there. The, there's the coroner. He would be sitting here with, on a cross table. On this side, there's the jurors, and here are the barristers. And then the people of, of Garston and other people were sitting at the end of the room, and there used to be a balcony up there. This was called the reading room. Oh, it says outside opened in 1863. It was opened in 1861. It was a multi-purpose venue. One of the reasons why it was called the reading room is because it did have a small library. Um, These are some of the key people who were there. These the the Steele brothers. This guy here, Alan Gibson Steele, he was the barrister for the Maybricks. He's quite important and famous because he's the first person ever to get a test century at Lords. He was captain of England at cricket. And at Lords, they had the honours board. He's number one on the honours board. First person ever to get a century at Lords. He was a really well-known figure, captain, captain England. He had five brothers, sorry, seven brothers, five of them who played for Lancashire. This is his brother who lived next door, this, uh, Douglas Quinton Steele. That's when he played for Upton, but he, all these guys played for Liverpool Cricket Club and for Lancashire. <laughs> There's Michael Maybrick in Will's Cigarettes Cards, which are doing those days, some of you remember, famous celebrity, famous sportsman. He was one of the most recognised people of his day. There's Florence's barrister, he became a Pickford, he became a famous judge later on, and there's a solicitor, the, Cle the Cleaver brothers were a solicitor, Richard Cleaver was president of the Liverpool Law Society. In the middle, there's Fletcher 
Fletcher Rogers, who was the chairman of the jury at the trial. He was a very well-known local man. When this was opened in 1861, he was here. He, he was married twice, had 17 children, and he's buried in St. Michael's Church, which is under the bridge in Garston, for those of you who know the area. So this was, a, this was already something that was catching a media frenzy. But with the added ingredient of this sort of star panel of people, it really, like all around the world, people were carrying stories about this case. On the 28th of May, some key things happened. Michael Maybrick, the brother, he tells the, the, the jurors about all the arsenic they found. The nanny tells the story of how she found this letter that Florence wrote to Brealey. The cook says how the foods tasted differently. Nurse Gores tells the story about when Florence moves the meat juice. And then Christine Samuelson said that while they were staying in the Palace Hotel in Birkdale, Florence has said to her she hated her husband. Now, this is, a, this is, this is being knocked down. Uh, there's still the place next to it now, it's called the Fisherman's Rest. It was famous for being the most haunted hotel in Britain. Uh, it, it, built right by the, on, on the seaside there, so the airplanes could land on, on the beach. And famous Hollywood stars stay there. In the 1966 World Cup, the Hungarian football team stayed there. Uh, when the Maybrick stayed there, it was a really well-known spa hotel. It was a nice place to stay. They had a nice weekend. Brewley was there. And the Samuelsons. Now, I haven't got enough time really to go through all this, but that quote was taken. You know, people often say, I hate you, don't they? But it was blown up. So everything against Florence, everything that was presented was against Florence. The defence produced no witnesses and no evidence. It was a really one-sided affair. They decided that they need to dig up James's body, which they do, on the 9th of 30th May, so the inquest is suspended. <coughs> and they take out bits of his body, including his brain, or half his brain, and they find a small amount of arsenic in his body. When I say a small amount, a tenth of a grain. Now, that was nowhere near enough to have killed him, but only, so the defence had a little bit of a case, but on the other hand, the fact that he had arsenic in his body gave the prosecution the vehicle to pursue the case against Florence. <coughs> they reconvened again on the 5th of June, back in this room. Um, the doctors who treated James say he died from an irritant poison. Dr. Carter who dealt with him, yeah, there's Dr. Carter, there's Dr. Humphreys. They, they said he caused of death was an irritant poison, most probably arsenic. The head waiter from the hotel in London where Florence and Brayley was called to say that they'd been together. That's Mr. Flatman from Mr. Flatman's hotel in London. So they're building a case all the time against Florence. Florence isn't taken back to Walton Jail at this point. She's kept for a couple of weeks in Lark Lane Police Station. And you can go into the cell. There's a wonderful guy there, Rupert's been there for many years and looked after it beautifully yesterday. You can go in and actually go into one of the cells. Uh, and there's a small little exhibition there of things relating to the, uh, the trial. So if you've never done that, it's on the front. He's, 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 he's never there early, but he's, he's, after about 10 o'clock, you'll find it. Well worth going in if you've never been in there. Florence is kept there. 
The last day of the inquest, he's still in this room. The police officer goes through all the things he found, including the fly papers. The county analyst goes through all the arsenic that was found in the house. Now, I haven't got, really got time to go through all of this, but you can see 20 grains of arsenic. He estimated 109 grains. Actually, he got, he got that wrong at the inquest. He, re, he corrected himself at the trial. But either way, a vast amount of arsenic was found in the house. An unbelievable amount. However, just one fiftieth of a grain of arsenic was found in his liver. At this point, Florence Barrister asked the coroner if he's going to call up that Doug Leash guy. Remember, he's the guy who walked over the original foreman of the jury who'd seen James take strychnine. And the coroner said, oh, no, no, don't need to bring him in. His evidence is not relevant. Well, I would argue it was very relevant. The verdict. Coroner Brigham spoke for 45 minutes and told the jury they had three questions to answer. It took the jury 30 minutes. Florence, for the last two days of the inquest, was kept in the library. Now, I don't know where Sue's gone, but we have, we've disagreed over this slightly. Um, that door there, there was a small library there. This has been slightly extended since there because they knocked down some cottages. If you come out of this building and turn left along the road there, the three oldest buildings currently standing in Garston are the three cottages just outside here. Uh, they're well worth having a quick look at before you go off. Um, Florence was, was taken out of the library. Florence hadn't heard any of this. Barrister had been there. Florence had been kept away. What's by a police officer? She was taken to the police station. The police station then is not in Hill Street, which is, which is now. That was only opened in 1889. The, the, the police station then was actually where the, the hospital is now. Alfred, it's not called the Alfred Jones Hospital anymore. What's it called, Rachel? Something else now. The South Seton Duda <laughs> hospital thingy. It's, anyway, it's just down the road there. Florence was taken down there for half an hour, and then she was brought back to the verdict. Verdict number one. The jury were unanimous that James had died of the administration of an irritant poison. All of them. 13 of the 14 said that that poison had been given to James by Florence. 12 of the 14 had decided that Florence had administered the irritant poison with intent to kill, to take life. Now, what's surprising about this, because remember, no defence was made at all. Florence's barrister decided they had what he called a wait and see. He wanted to see what the evidence against her was, and he decided he wasn't going to pursue a defence until later on, because he thought it was going to go to trial anyway. But it, it, it meant all this was one-sided. But even though this one-sided diet of information had been poured on the jury, two of them still didn't vote the fact that Florence had tried to kill James. That could only be two people who knew him well and knew that he was a serial bruiser of, of, of drugs. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. After that, the coroner says to Florence, you, we have come to the conclusion that willful you, your husband has been willfully murdered by you. And she was sent to trial. Okay, go back to what's, what, it, what it's called. Kangaroo court or not? On the one hand, it is very easy to say, because I, as I say, I strongly believe that Florence was, was innocent. However, given the information that was provided to the jury, which was one-sided, with no real 
being tested in any meaningful way, with no alternative narr narrative of what could have happened, James's drug use was not mentioned on one single occasion. James's relationship with other women wasn't mentioned on one single occasion. Florence's relation was mentioned extensively. Okay, was it, what was wrong with it? First of all, the police decided there was only one suspect. And they just pursue her. They don't look at alternative scenarios or alternative suspects. No mention is made of James' habits. The police took away many of Florence's clothes in for testing, but they never once tested any of James's clothes apart from his bed clothes. And on his bed clothes, they found no traces of arsenic. Now, this is when he's dying, when he's secreting fluids. If he'd have been having arsenic in his system then, been given to him, it would have appeared. That's the only bit they tested. They found no arsenic. They didn't want to really look at his clothes because it would have been look, wouldn't have been good for the prosecution. The police inspector pointed out Florence and Brealey. This is one of the key witnesses. He was the head waiter. He couldn't remember Florence. He couldn't remember Brealey. So when he arrived at the inquest, the police officer which we think was Baxendale, but we can't prove that, was taken and said, hey, have a quick look, have a quick look. So then when later on, he could say, oh, I recognised her. He actually admits that later on in a statement he makes later on. The Maybrick brothers concealed evidence. <coughs> Edwin knew, Edwin was one of James's brother, about the use of strychnine, but when he's asked at the inquest, did James take any drugs, he just said, oh, only some for his liver. That was a gross misstatement, absolutely untrue. The, the, the coroner was a lawyer, limited knowledge of toxicology. The way he ordered the witnesses, he was trying, his prime job is to find out what killed the person. Because if you know what's killed the person, you might decide there wasn't even a murder. But he did it the other way around. He tried to construct the narrative that pointed towards Florence before he even decided that James had died suspiciously. He said that Douglas's statement that he'd seen James taking strychnine only weeks before wasn't relevant. Whoops, didn't mean to do that. The inquest jury, this will really surprise some of you, was made up of many of James's friends. Two of the people on the jury had actually even been to his funeral. Fletcher Rogers, who was the chairman of the jury, knew him well. Because he was, James was a cotton merchant, Fletcher Rogers was the president of the Cotton Brokers Association. He was also the chairman of the arbitration committee, and James had been in a dispute with another cotton merchant, so we knew him. After the trial was finished, Fletcher Rogers actually moves into Battlecrease, James's house. Florence's defence team provides no witnesses, no support, no evidence. So was the evidence tested robustly? Absolutely not. Did Florence get fair treatment? Absolutely not. Went to trial. She was found guilty at the Liverpool Assizes in St George's Hall. She was sent to 15 years in prison. Spent some of the time in Woking Prison, which was a really, really dark place, and then Aylesbury, which was a little bit better by Victorian standards, but by modern standards was pretty dire. 
She came out of prison in 1904. She went across to America. She, some, at first, was a bit of a celebrity. She gave talks. But then she was getting older. She was getting frailer. She'd had enough of it all. So she had some contacts from families and friends. So she buys this house in the 1920s and it gets it built for her. It's, and if you look at it, it's in the middle of the woods. I've, I've been to that spot and the house is gone, but that's how she lived. No running water, no electricity. That's how she lived the last 20 years of her life. Dying in 9th, December 1941 in abject poverty, covered in fleas and in a you know, house was just a appalling state. Uh, and she's buried, she got contact with a local school and that's where she's buried there. I don't know who that young looking fella is there, <laughs> with a funny dodgy haircut. Um, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, so it's, it's sort of, it's a sad story. Um, and when she was arrested, oh sorry, the, the day after James died, her two children were taken out of the house and she never, ever saw them again. When they became older, because they went to live with the Maybrick brothers, they'd obviously affected their, they poisoned their minds, if you like, because her own kids believed she was guilty, sadly. One of them, the son died tragically, but a daughter who lived until the 70s would never speak to, to her mother, never have any contact with her. She said, this is a closed story. It's sad. So, Kangaroo Court, yes. Thank you very much. And that was Chris Jones with the first of two talks he gave over the weekend of the 10th and the 11th of September 2022 at the book launch event for the Maybrook murder and the diary of Jack the Ripper. I'd like to thank Chris Jones and James Johnston for making the release of that presentation possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, the world's largest online repository of information about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Our podcast section contains hundreds of conference presentations, author interviews, roundtable discussions, limited-run serials, and book reviews, and I encourage you to subscribe to our show and check them out. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our podcast releases, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for RipperCast. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.